you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had be content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Good morning, church. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, My name's Pat. For those who I haven't met yet, I'd love to get to know you. I have the joy, the privilege of being one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. And for those who have been around for a long time, you might notice something different. I've got spectacles. Uh, I am aging. Uh, Who knew? That happens to all of us. And yeah, unfortunately, it means that I can't see my Bible all the time. So yeah, uh, please bear with me as I get used to these lights. But today we're going to be in a heavier uh, chapter of Joshua as we're looking at uh, hidden sin and secret sin. So I'd really love uh, to start by praying. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you when it convicts us, uh, when it shapes us. So Father, as we come before it now, uh, please do a mighty work by your Holy Spirit. Please point out to us our hidden sin. Uh, Please speak to us through this passage. Please reveal truth to us. And Father, may, may you be made really big and may, may I be made really small during this preach. Amen. So when I was about uh, seven or eight years old, I had a little friend, and as we, most of us did, and his name was Little Jeremy. And Little Jeremy and I were over his place uh, one day for a play date um, and his mum was a teacher. And so it's a Saturday and she said, boys, I've got to go to school to do some work, so you're just going to have to come with me. Uh, You're going to have to play the school grounds. I hope that's all right. So there we were. We went along with his mum to the school grounds. Now, this school wasn't a normal school. It was in the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of the bush on the outskirts of town. Uh, It had no properties around it or anything like that, and you'll understand why that's an important detail in a minute. Uh, And then we go there. 
and we're playing, and she's doing some work inside, and we're just playing in the bush as kids did in the 90s. And then little Jeremy turns to me and he says, check out what I've got. And he shows me a lighter. And we're like, whoa, this is an adult's toy, a lighter. We've never held one of these. We've never played with one of these. So the first thing we do is crouch down, we light a leaf on fire, and we quickly stamp it out. It was the most fun we'd ever had. So we take another couple of steps, we light another leaf on fire, and we stamp it out. And we do this continuously, and we're just having so much fun with the lighter that we end up doing a lap of the school. And when we get back to where we started, to the car park, there are two huge red fire engines, a very small but getting out of control bushfire, and people everywhere screaming. One guy screaming at us, saying it was them. They started it. So we did what every seven-year-old would do. We piffed the lighter as far as we could, and we ran. Thankfully, the fire was very small and very under control. The fires were very great. No one was hurt, no buildings were hurt. I just have to clarify that. And the fireys, they said to us, did you start this? Is what this man's saying true? We said, no, it wasn't us. On the drive home, I looked my dad in the eye. He says, did you start that fire, mate? I said, no, it wasn't me. But that night, I'm lying in bed riddled with the guilt, riddled with the guilt that I'd lied to all these people. And I had, in fact, actually started that fire. So I go down the hallway tears streaming from my face, and I say, Mom and Dad, it was me, it was us, it was actually us, we started the fire. And you might think they had this amazing moment of parenting and grace and forgiveness, no, we got walloped. <laughs> and, and then Dad marched me down to the fire station the next morning, and he said, tell them exactly what you told me last night. And I you know, confessed again. And so what they did back in the day again, they got out this book and they just showed me pictures of what house fires do to bodies. It was full on. But I was faced with the stark reality of what a small spark, like literal spark of sin, could do to a house. And we're looking at something similar today. We're going to be seeing what a small spark of hidden sin can do to a whole nation of Israel, the dire consequences of hidden sin. For the note-takers, we're going to be looking at the betrayal, the folly, and the consequence. So please read with me. Uh, we're going to be, now would be a great time to have your Bibles open because we're going to be kind of just walking through uh, chapter 7. So please turn me, with me to chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kamari, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see, verse 1, we had this line, it kind of sets up the whole narrative of what we're about to read. Like when you're listening to a musical or an orchestra, and you have the first song, the overture, and it kind of gives away the plot, it gives away a lot of the melodies, it, it might tell you exactly what's going to happen in the story, so you can actually follow along a bit better. Verse 1 is kind of like the overture of this passage, it gives away the plot. But I want to take a second for those who haven't been here through our Joshua series, or maybe this is your first time in church ever, big welcome to you. But let's walk through the story from the beginning. Because you see, the Bible is a book about God's relationship with humankind. The overarching story is about God and his creation. 
We see in Genesis that God creates creation for him to dwell perfectly with mankind. But mankind rejected him. We stole from him. We broke the goodness of God. We rejected his promises. And that is where sin entered the world. You see, sin created a chasm between God and us. God cannot dwell with sin. However, from the very moment of that happening, from the very moment that we stole from him, he decided that he would up, end up trying to save us. He would save his people and bring them back to him. And throughout Genesis, we see the birth of the Israelite nation who ended up enslaved in Egypt. And they're waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And God then saves them from that land through his servant Moses and promises to lead them into the promised land. And there, that land will be flowing with milk and honey. It will have absolutely everything they need. They will be his great people. He will be with them in presence and they will have this great land. That is the promises of the Old Testament. But continually, Israel fails God and they end up being punished in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, a generation has passed away. Moses has died and his successor, Joshua, who we're reading about now, has been raised up and they stand ready to inherit this, pro- this promised land. They start devoting themselves afresh, submitting themselves to being the people of God, deciding that they can't do this on their own. They are going to need God to go before them. So we see them cross the river. We see them reaffirm who they are. And last week, we saw the incredible fall of the biggest and most threatening city in their way, Jericho. Literally, the biggest worldly obstacle they could ever face was the city of Jericho. And God, in his might, brought it down and gave it to the Israelites. See, it seemed where we left off last week that nothing could stop these people. It was going so well. They were the great number of people. They were in the land. They had it. They had the presence of God with them. So what could possibly go wrong? Let's keep on reading from verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. Let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people... Oh, sorry. And and they returned and he said to them, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about three thousand men went up from there and from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabrim. And struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So, remembering that Israel have just leveled Jericho in the most amazing way, the Lord is with them, and they continue on to the promised land. If Jericho is Melbourne, I is Ballarat. It is tiny compared to them, and the people of, who spy out the land confirm that. It should be a walk-in-the-park conquest, but what we read is the total opposite happens. Israelites die as a result of the failed attempt. This little town fights back miraculously, and the Israelites become like water in fear. Notice how the author of this uses the exact same language 
that they originally used to describe the original inhabitants of the land. Because in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, Rahab says, I know the Lord has given you the land and that you, you, the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away like water. Do you notice this is now what the Israelites feel like? And you can imagine the confusion of Joshua and the leaders of Israel and we see that confusion in verses 6 to 9. They have gone from people, land and blessing to completely doubting the promises of God. They're now thinking that they have been betrayed by God himself, that they are against the power of God, therefore they are people that melt in the presence presence of God. Let's continue to read from verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs on their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off your name for the earth. And what will you do for your great name? See, this must have been an unbelievably confusing time for Joshua and the leaders of Israel because it was going so well, but it turned so bad and they have no idea why. So they cry out to God. And when I listen to Joshua's cry out to God, I'm left wondering what is actually underneath this prayer? Is this another prayer like in the wilderness where Israel cursed God for leading them astray? Or is this an example of honest lament and confusion? And honestly, I don't know. And I think maybe that's because there's elements of both that ring true through it. But here is what I do know. God, in his mercy, he doesn't rebuke them for their prayer. He welcomes their lament. He gives room for their frustration. And we can be thankful for a God who accepts us, who welcomes us in all of our emotions. In our times of victory, in our times of vision, in our times of doubt, in our times of despair, in our times of trouble, in our times of tension, God wants to listen to his people. And of course, what the Lord does do, he's, he opens Joshua's eye, eyes to the real reason behind the defeat. And we find it out here. Look with me to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, lied, and put among their own belongings. See what generous grace God has offered Joshua even here. He reveals that it isn't in fact God betraying Israel. Rather, it is Israel who has betrayed him. They have stuffed up. See, the temptation for all of us, for every human, is to look at God and blame him for the problems of the lives of the world. But it is never the case that God is responsible for the sin in our lives and our idol worship. That is the one thing on earth that we don't need help with here. See, God highlights to Joshua and to Israel what is true for us today. They are the problem, not God. They are the reason for the brokenness. They are the reason for the judgment, not God. 
See, our idol worship is just never the fault of God, and neither is Israel's here. And God shows that they are, in fact, the ones who have stolen. They are the ones who have lied, and that is why his anger burns against them. But in his grace, he points out the betrayal of Israel against him. You see, what is hidden to God, what is, sorry, what is hidden from Israel is really obvious to God because he's God. So let's turn and look at the second point, the folly of hidden sin. When I get home from work, one of my fa- favourite things is when my family hides from me. Now, it's not because I get some peace and quiet. Uh, it's because I really like the game hide and seek and my family are really bad at it. Uh, so I get home and I can always find Carly because she has to be with May and May talks all the time. And so they're usually hiding in the fridge cavity. Uh, but the easiest person to find is Simeon because he's the worst hider in the world. I think I have a photo of him. His favourite spot is to hide behind the couch. <laughs> and as soon as I walk in the door, I can see the top of that giant head. The sniper's dream, I like to call him. Uh, I can see the top of the giant head poking out, and he's always so surprised whenever I pop over the top and get him. He cannot believe that I can see him, but he has no idea how obvious he looks. But what we start to see here in this passage is the perspective that God has of our sin. Like my whole family being terrible at hide and seek, there is no point any of us, any Israelite ever, trying to hide anything from God. See, a consistent thing that God is uh, concerned with throughout the scripture is idol worship. The first two commandments that God gives us are all about idol worship. You shall have no God but me and do not worship idols. And this is because God knows that from the first humans all the way through to the people sitting in this room right now, every one of us has a problem with idol worship. Our hearts are absolute idol factories. We can take absolutely anything and make it absolutely everything. And we see in verse 1 that this is the reason for Israel's breaking of the faith because they have devoted things in their camp. We read on to see what the Lord reveals to Joshua in verse 12. He says, Therefore, the people cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs on their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Do you notice what he says in verse 12? I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. See, this is possibly the most crucial hinge point of this whole passage. Israel's fear is that God is not with them, that he's abandoned them. And he's warning them here that that is a healthy fear to have. See, God cannot and will not coexist with sin. There is no room in the presence of God for the sin that causes separation from God. God will not compete for second place in the hearts of his people. Israel can either have all of him or absolutely none of him. And in the following verses, we see that God gives Joshua clear instruction on how to weed out the sin which is in the camp. Now, I'm not going to read it all because it's a quite long chunk, but imagine with me, if you will. You are one of 10,000, like tens of thousands of Israelites. 
It's early in the morning and you're being lined up tribe by tribe in 12 groups. And I want you to imagine what it was like for a man named Achan. Now, Achan is a man who has a secret, a big secret. He has stolen something that no one could possibly know about. He has no idea why they're gathering this morning, but it cannot be because it's about what he's stolen, because absolutely no one knows. But as he stands there, he slowly loses confidence in his secret. As moment by moment, the leaders go through tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, until all of a sudden, there he is, face to face with Joshua, the leader of Israel. See, the this, this this sin that he never thought would be a problem is all of a sudden brought to the fore. Have you ever had a moment like this where a friend or a partner says, we need to talk? Do you have something you need to tell me? Is there anything that you're keeping from me? I'm going to have to ask you to explain this. It is a sickening feeling. And the reason why it's a sickening feeling is because it's a guilty feeling. It is a right, guilty feeling. Now, it's not really clear here if Achan is repentant or not in this moment, but he has this moment where he just spews forth his guilt in confession. Look at me to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in, in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and they laid them before the Lord. You see, Achan is fully guilty. The secret is out. He has stolen. The sin is no longer hidden. And we remember that in chapter 6, Israel had been commanded to take all the silver and all the gold and put it into the treasury and stay away explicitly from the things that would lead them astray. And here we see the loot of Achan, and he is stuffed up big time. You see, the silver and the gold that was taken wasn't just a little bit. That is a lifetime of wages. That is a lifetime of riches. And from context, we can actually assume that Achan isn't a struggling member of society. He's actually a really rich guy. We're going to see later. He's got family. He's got oxen. He's got donkeys. He's got sheep. He is rich. So this is a mood of greed, not a mood of poor desperation. And to confirm that more, we get to the beautiful cloak of Shinar the cloak that he himself describes as a beautiful cloak that he just must have. This is a front cover of Vogue exclusive number. This is a very look at me. The kings, the queens and the worshippers of Baal in Babylon got around in these cloaks. For Achan, this was a piece to bolster his image, to bolster his status among people, to look how beautiful I am. You see, the Achan committed clear, 
clear sin against God. Sin is poison. It affects, it destroys, it rots, and eventually kills absolutely everything that it comes into contact with. Everything, period. When Achan took the cloak and the treasure, he was doing it out of selfish greed. But as we see, that sin goes on to then affect more than just himself. It has already cost Israel lives, and it's going to go on to cost him everything. Now, I don't think that Achan woke up, or any of us wake up and think, today is the day I make the decision to ruin my life with sin. It's just not how we think. No, sin has a way of incrementally creeping into our lives in such a way that if we don't call it out, if we don't find it, if we don't crush it, it will absolutely destroy us. And the sin that we often permit into our lives in the first moments is very small. It doesn't come in the form of the thing that will ultimately destroy and crush us, does it? Perhaps it didn't take long for his grumbling heart of Achan to grow into this fully-fledged theft. Perhaps it doesn't take long for our wandering eyes to turn into fully-fledged moments of adultery. Maybe it doesn't take moments of huge anger to spill over into violence against other people or even murder. Maybe it doesn't take long for a sensitive information that you've got that you need to share with someone to become a fully-fledged gossip habit. See, whether it be a thought in your car, in a moment on the road, a moment in your room alone, an act of selfishness, laziness, greed, lust, how tempting is it for us to act as if God can't see exactly what is going on inside our heads? And in moments of clarity, we know that that these secrets just don't exist, don't we? Because God made the whole cosmos. He made the tallest mountain, the deepest valley. He's responsible for every hair on your head. He can hear your every thought in your brain. What makes us think we can hide sin from him? One of my favorite analogies for hidden sin is this. It's like having a pet and it's a tiger and you've named it Fluffy. And it might be fun. It might be cool. It might be fun to play with. It might be controllable for now. But do not be surprised when you wake up and Fluffy is eating you alive and destroying your family. God is concerned with every part of our lives because if left unchecked, these small acts of rebellion can turn into fully-fledged wars on God and our relationship with Him. You see, the smallest spark of sin can turn into something that destroys people from the inside out, and a nation like Israel from the inside out. And that is why God is calling Israel to stamp it out right here. He's saying, get together, find the sin, destroy the sin. And that takes us to our final point, as we look, because we've looked at the betrayal of God, we've looked at the folly of hidden sin. But please read with me from verse 24 as we start to look at the consequence of sin. And Joshua and all Israel with him, with him took Achan, the son of Zahar, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep and the tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why do you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains till this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger 
Therefore, to this day, that place is called the Valley of Ahor. See, church, the wages of sin is death. This is a truth that has been true since the very first moment that human sin entered the world. And we will all die, and it is absolutely because of the sin in the world. The sin of Achan didn't only affect himself, but his family and all that he owned. And it did that to become a great warning to the nation of Israel. But why is this story so important? Why is it in the book of Joshua? What did it mean to the original readers? See, remember that we're reading a historical account that actually happened to a group of people in real time. And we see evidence in chapter 6 that this book was written very soon after the events because Rahab and her family are still living amongst the Israelites to the day. So why did they write it down? Why did they talk about it? You see, we're supposed to read chapter 7 in contrast to chapter 6. In chapter 6, God judges the sins of the nations and he saves an outsider in his, mace, in his grace and in his mercy. And in, God, in um, Joshua chapter 7, he judges the hidden sin of Israel and highlights the danger of the insider falling away. Do you remember in Joshua chapter 4, they, erase, they raised 12 memorial stones of God's faithfulness in Israel on the banks of the shore. And here they erect another group of stones. A group of stones of judgment. Of God's divine judgment. A warning to the nation of Israel to take every single sin seriously. And it reminds me of yet another moment of hidden sin that we see in the Bible. Remember with me to Acts chapter 4 when Barnabas sells a field and gives all the money and lays it at the apostles' feet to help those in the church in need. It's an amazing moment. And then the next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, they try to copy him and do the same thing. They sell a field, but rather than give it all, they give a little bit and tell everybody they've given it all. Now, their sin isn't that they didn't give it all. Their sin is that they acted like they gave it all. You see, in Joshua, we have a new covenant community entering in the new land of God with the new presence of God. In Acts, we have a new covenant community entering into the world with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here in Joshua, we see that hidden sin it threatens to destroy God's people from the inside out. And God punishes Achan with his life. In Acts, hidden sin threatens to destroy the people of God from the inside out, and God punishes Ananias and Sapphira with their life. You see, in 1400 BC, hidden sin amongst the people of God was a huge problem. And in 1 AD, when the, feet, the footprints of Jesus are still warm in the earth, hidden sin amongst the people of God is a huge problem. In 2023, at City on a Hill, Melbourne East, sitting in this very room, hidden sin amongst the people of God, I don't doubt, is a big problem for us. And the thing I'm so struck by when I read this passage is where he hides his sin. He hides it in the tent. 
beneath the earth, away from the world, the last place for absolutely anybody to see. And that's exactly where I like to keep my sin. It feels safe there. It feels like no one will touch it there, like it's just me that sees it there. How about you? How foolish is it for us to treat our sin like this? I can just imagine what it would feel like for Achan to feel safe in the moment when Israel starts gathering, only to then see them weed out the people until I come face to face with the judge. And this is why I struggle to believe the amazing grace of the gospel sometimes. It really is. Because I can't look at Achan in judgment. I too have failed moments of God in moments of idol worship. I deserve absolutely the punishment that he got. And I don't doubt that you deserve it too. The fact that when I open my tent, I lift up my mat to reveal all that is there, only to see nothing. Clear, gone, empty, clean. But my sin didn't just disappear into the ether. It was paid for. You see, the heavy consequence of sin came down on me just like it did on Achan. But just in his mercy, it didn't land on us. See, when the tent of Jesus is opened, when his mat is lifted up, there is my sin. There is your sin. There is every thought, word, and deed that we have ever done that is in rebellion against God. See, Jesus was the only one who didn't have anything in his tent. And he stood forward in front of all the nation of Israel and put his hand up and said, put it on me. I'll take it. See, Romans 6.23 gives us this amazing truth. And once you comprehend it, it is truly irresistible. And I say truly irresistible. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see why this is good news? And the crazy thing is, is this isn't even the extent of the good news. It's just the start. You see, not only the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus deal with your sin, but in this great exchange of our sin, we bear his righteousness. See, God not just doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just tolerate us. He absolutely loves us. You are His affection, church. When He looks at you, He adores the creation that He made. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly says this, Christians of all people should be the most free, the most uninhabited, the most unrestrained in our enjoyment of God because he's not merely an obligation. He's not a duty. He's not a deity to be appeased. He's a father who enjoys his children. He delights in you. Yes, he knows about your sin, but he is not repelled by you. He is drawn to you and he's pleased to forgive you, to cleanse you and to walk with you. Do you know this church? Do you like really know this? And if, you don't, if we do know this, do we act like this? Or are we still acting like we're at constant enmity with God? 
And if you don't know or trust Jesus, let me ask you this. Who is dealing with that heap of mess in your tent? When it comes a moment for you to face judgment, what are you going to say? And if you're sitting here thinking, that is actually good news. I really want to be on Jesus' team. What do I have to do? Tell me, what do I have to buy? What do I have to give up? Nothing. Have faith. Believe in Jesus. You see, the gospel, the good news, isn't about what you have to do for God. Stop trying that. How you can best clean your tent. Stop trying that. It's about recognising there is nothing that you can do to write your relationship on your own and you need a saviour and that saviour is Jesus. So here's my invitation to all of us today, those who have been here forever, those who are here for a first time, come afresh to Jesus, come and find rest in Him. All the answers of life rest in the beauty of Jesus. Now church, we're going to have a time to think on our hidden sin, to like really reflect because we're seeing the insidious nature of it, the way that it destroys us from the inside out. So I want to encourage us to now to pray, to sit and to think about it. Spend some time with God now, truly confessing the things that you really don't want to talk to Him about. And spend this time confessing, knowing that He already knows about it. A helpful posture I find in moments like this is I actually sit with my hands out in front of me with my palms facing up. And I like to visualise the sin that I'm confessing when I'm really confessing. And I hold it there. And when I'm done confessing, I dump it at the foot of the cross. Really letting go of that sin. Really giving it to Jesus. So during this song, before you start singing, I encourage you to dump your foot your your sin at the foot of the cross. Myself, Nick and Rosalie, we're going to be out the front during the songs. If you want to come and pray or chat through anything, come and talk to us. We'd love to do that for you. But church, don't let a small spark of sin destroy you. Don't try hide what cannot be hidden. Come to Jesus afresh today. Let me pray and I'll give you a moment to pray yourself. God, we praise you for your mercy and your grace upon us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, please help every single one of us in this room to come to you honestly right now. It does not matter what the person next to us thinks. It only matters what you do. Father, please search our hearts and point out where we are betraying you, where we are not trusting you, where we are stupidly trying to hide from you. Lord, please point out our folly. Renew us afresh in the gospel today. May we cling to Jesus' cross today. Lord, please work powerfully right now. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.